so good to be together. We're going to study scripture, so if you've got a Bible with you, let me, let me encourage you to open it up to John chapter 9, and guests who are with us, it's such a joy to have you worshiping with us this morning. We've been walking through uh, the gospel of John and just seeing Jesus talk about Jesus, seeing Jesus in dialogue, offering hope to the world, and bread to the hungry, and water to the thirsty, and here we're going to see Jesus as the light of the world in John 9. We're... Um, it's a big passage, so we're not going to read the whole thing in one big chunk and just hope we remember it as we move through. So what we're going to do instead is we're going to read it in stages as we move through and study this chapter. So what happens at the beginning, which I'm going to read a little bit from now, um, what happens at the beginning is Jesus heals a man who was born blind, and it's an absolutely miraculous thing. Nobody sees it coming. Jesus heals this guy. But the main point, I would argue, of what's going on here in John chapter 9 is not so much the healing of his physical blindness, but it's the other blindness. There is another blindness in John 9 that becomes evident in their response to the healing of the man born blind. And so I hope we're going to see that. So we're going to come back to the early verses in just a minute. But for now, we're just going to drop into how people respond once this guy gets healed by Jesus. If you'd follow along, I'm going to start in verse 10. So he's been healed. Here come the townspeople, verse 10. So they asked him, then how were your eyes open? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and spread it on my eyes and told me, go to Siloam and wash. So when I went and washed, I received my sight. Where is he? They asked. I don't know. They brought the man who used to be blind to the Pharisees. The day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes was a Sabbath. So that's, that's a problem. You're not supposed to do this stuff on the Sabbath. Verse 15. And the Pharisees asked him again how he received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, he told them. I washed and I can see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a sinful man perform such signs? And there was a division among them. Again, they asked the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He's a prophet, he said. The Jews did not believe this about him, that he was blind and received sight until they summoned the parents of the one who had received his sight. Then they asked them, is this your son, the one you say was born blind? How then does he now see? We know this is our son and that he was born blind, his parents answered. But we don't know how he now sees, and we don't know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they were afraid of the Jews, since the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him, that's Jesus, as the Messiah, he would be banned from the synagogue. This is why his parents said he's of age. Ask him. So a second time, they summoned the man who had been blind and told him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, and now I can see. You know, some of the words that are most often associated with Christian faith, at least in the English-speaking world, are the words that were written by and penned by the great hymn writer John Newton, who said, I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now 
I see. He was talking about a, a deeper blindness than a physical blindness, a blindness from which Jesus released him. And that's the Christian confession is that we all come into this world born blind. And Jesus opens our eyes to let us see something glorious. You know, in the Gospels, the, the blindness that Jesus encounters more often than any physical blindness is the spiritual blindness of resistance to him. He's encountering that all over the place. Now, he'll heal many people who are physically blind, but what he ultimately, more importantly, wants to do is he wants to open people's blind eyes spiritually. So where's the spiritual blindness come from? Well, you read through the Gospels and you, you see that it comes from this kind of native religious pride. They know we've got a story. You know, we've got a special thing with God and it goes on for thousands of years. Abraham's one of our guys. We got his DNA running in us. We got Moses. We got the Sinai experience, right? We've got years and years of history with God where he has favored us over every nation on the planet. And this kind of led to a moral and spiritual sense of superiority and entitlement, a blindness. So we've been on the parenting journey of teenagers, parenting teenagers for the last eight years, so I know we have your prayers. Um, and one thing that that's meant for us is that we have listened to a lot of Christian rap music over the past eight years, I mean, lots and lots, where not just the kids in the back, mom and I are both singing the rap, like doing the Christian rap thing up in the front seat. So we're, we're familiar, we've got a whole corpus of iTunes playlists with Christian rap stuff, right? Well. One of, the, one of the rap artists, Christian rap artists, a guy named Andy Minio, he's written a number of great songs, and he actually, th I mean, these guys they think very theologically about the world and weave a Christian worldview into a lot of what they're talking about. Well, one of the songs is very interesting um, because it's a, a song that's written as a public apology to his older sister. He's got an older sister named Grace, and he writes this song to his older sister, Grace, and uh, she was born deaf, and he says, it took me 25 years to realize what that was like. And he says in the song, I never learned to sign. He's like, I don't know why I never left my world and entered into your world so I could talk with my own sister. And if you ask the question, why did it take him 25 years to realize he can't talk to his sister? What happened, and he'll t say this in a moment, we'll watch it. But he says, here's what happened. I was 25 years old when my older sister Grace's son graduated. And at his graduation, a bunch of her friends in the deaf community came over to her house for the celebration, and they were all together speaking in sign language. And he said, I didn't understand a word that they were saying, and it dawned on me. This is how my sister Grace is related to me for 25 years. I've never even thought about her being included or not. She's been isolated all this time. So I want you to watch him tell the story in the song. I remember your son graduation, that's when I met your friends, and they was all having conversation, but they were saying stuff that I couldn't understand, then all of a sudden it felt like I understood something I missed my whole life, for the first time I was wearing your shoes, and for the first time I was hearing your views, uh, I never knew how complicated life is when you feel so isolated, and I know we don't speak much, Cause when talking got hard, all I ever did was throw the piece up. My big sister Grace, I'm sorry, I never learned to sign. Uh, and even though you were born deaf, I pray you forgive me for the years I lived blind. 
You think about that last line. Even though you were born deaf, I pray you'll forgive me for the years I lived blind. There's another kind of blindness. That's the one that Jesus is addressing here. This passage is about seeing with new eyes, that Jesus is doing something, right? This is about grace that finds us in our need, and when we come to him and we don't hide our need, we don't try to keep up appearances, but we come to him desperate, he opens eyes, he does miraculous stuff, but, but in the midst of the healing, there's also another story. There's a story of judgment. This passage is about a deeper blindness. It's about the blindness of self-made morality. It's about the blindness of thinking other people need more mercy than I do. That's what John 9 is talking about. So I want us to see three pictures in our passage. The first picture is this, the compassion of God. The compassion of God. So what's happening in verse 1? I'm going to give us the point in your notes, and then we're going to read the first nine verses. So here's the point. Jesus makes contact with what's broken. Jesus makes contact with what's broken. If you'd follow along, now we're going to read those early verses of what Jesus does. Verse 1. <clears throat> As Jesus was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Just pause there for a second. So Jesus is saying the same thing he said last chapter. We looked at this last week in John chapter 8 when Jesus saw the lighting of the four torches in the court of the Gentiles, right? And right there in that moment, he says, I'm the light of the world. You see these lights. I'm what they were pointing to. And Jesus is talking about the same thing here in verse 5. Verse 6. After he said these things, that I'm the light of the world, he spits on the ground, made some mud from the saliva, and spread the mud on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which, and now John interrupts and puts, gives us a Hebrew translation, which means sent. So he left, washed, and came back seeing. His neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar said, isn't this the one who used to sit begging? Some said, he's the one. Others were saying, no, but he looks like him. And he kept saying, I'm the one. It, you can almost pick up on this palpable excitement of this man. If you've ever seen the viral videos from a few years back when these glasses came out that allowed people who had never seen in color before, and then they put these glasses on and they can see in color. I was watching one earlier this week just to remember, and it, there's an elderly man in the seat and his family's gathered around for his birthday, and they give him the glasses and he opens the box and he's kind of like, you know, what's the deal? I already got sunglasses. He's kind of looking at it quizzically. And they said, just put them on. And he puts them on and he instantly starts to bawl and he takes them off, and he puts his, his head in his hands, and he just starts weeping, and then he puts them back on, and he's crying, and then he takes them off, and he puts them back on, and he's looking, he's looking down, he's looking up, he's putting them up and down, and he's saying, look at the trees. He's looking at these, they've got these balls and balloons of all kinds of colors, and he just can't take it in. He's so excited, right? Imagine if that's the excitement of going from not seeing in color to seeing in color. This man has never seen the light of day in his life. And he comes back from the pool 
and he can see, and these people are saying, I'm not sure that's really the guy. And he's like, I promise you, I'm the guy. I'm the same guy, and I can see, right? John 8 and 9, they go together because Jesus in John 8 is preaching the sermon, and in John 9, he's demonstrating his power. He's saying in John 8, I'm the light of the world. Trust me. Anyone who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then in John chapter 9, he says, let me show you what that looks like. And he demonstrates his power to open blind eyes. Here's the thing. Before the healing actually happens, there's a theological exam that's given by the disciples to Jesus. So disciples come parachuting in, right, with their question. This is a moment. So they see Jesus stop, and he looks at this guy, sets his gaze on this guy, and they seize this as an opportunity to talk about theology. And they ask this question. So Jesus is looking at the man born blind, and they say, whose fault is this? Right, how insensitive is this question? This guy can hear you. Right? He's right there, and they say, Who's, is it his fault? Did he sin, or did his parents sin? So they give, not Jesus, uh, just a theological question. They give him a multiple-choice question, and there's only two options. It's, a trig- you know, it's, it's binary. You get A, or you get B. Was it his parents that sinned, or was it, G- was it this man who sinned? And Jesus says, I'm going to have to choose option C. I'm going to have to choose none of the above. It's neither one. I don't like your multiple-choice. He, he doesn't go with it, Right? They had a simplistic view of suffering. So here's what happens. Jesus redirects misguided theology. I love that he does this. He redirects misguided theology. What's the hidden assumption in the question that these disciples ask? Here's what they thought. They thought a pound of sin inevitably yields a pound of suffering. And they're looking at a situation and they're using all the diagnostic tools that they have. They show up on the scene and here's their theology. Bad things happen to bad people. A bad thing has happened. Who went wrong? Who sinned? Was it his parents or was it him? This is lifted straight out of the counseling manual of Job's friends in the Old Testament, right? They pull up alongside Joel. His whole life has fallen apart. And what do they come in and they say, look, man, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's been tough. I know you've lost, you've lost all your kids. You know, all your kids are dead. You got nothing in the bank. You've lost everything. So why have you been hiding sin? Right? It's, these are lessons in insensitivity, how not to come to the bedside of someone who's suffering. So I, as many of you know, I'm from New Orleans. I was born in New Orleans, and I, I lived in New Orleans. Our family lived in New Orleans when Hurricane Katrina came through. And uh, we saw the devastation of our city. There was, a, there was an elderly lady who was, who was dead behind our church building. She had been stuck in her attic. And in a desperate, desperation, she tried to swim out and they just found her. And she was just things you'd never see in a city. No lights, no power, helicopters over, overhead at night. It was just crazy. And, and as pastors, we were coming in and we're talking, trying to gather our people in different places and, and have times of worship and try to, to help people see the hope that we have here for our city. And then here comes, in the evening news, here come evangelical leaders parachuting in from a thousand miles away, helicoptering in with winning analysis of what went wrong. Here's, and here's what they said. They said, here's what happened. Here's why Hurricane Katrina came, because New Orleans gave itself to homosexuality. That's why 
You lost your lives in this city. That's why your city is ruined, because of your casinos. And all of this, right? And, and here we are. We would walk up to people. We had, we had bright green shirts, and we would just walk through the city. Members of our congregation walk up to people who were devastated. Sometimes they were just standing. We called it the, the Katrina fog, just descended over the whole city. People would just be standing in their front yards just looking like this. And you'd walk up, and all you'd say is, uh, we've got shovels, and we're, we're here to help. And you'd just literally say those words, and they would fall into your arms and just to begin heaving. And then they'd turn on the news at night, and evangelical leaders would say, here's what you did to deserve this. And what we wanted to say, people of the kingdom of God in the city is, Please stop talking. We're trying to love people who have been utterly devastated. Stop trying to identify who sinned to cause this flood to strike this city. Man, can this be our church where we pull up and we sound like Jesus does in this passage? He's like, I don't like either one of your options. Here's, here's what's happening. God wants to do something at ground zero. That's what Jesus gives them. Option C. God's going to manifest his glory right here where everything went sideways. That's the answer. Like what would happen if we were a church like that? If we relate to people with that kind of redemptive impulse, it's beautiful. What else is going on in our text? This next point is Jesus unveils his purpose. He unveils his purpose. You know one of the earliest pictures of God that you get in the entire Bible is God with his hands in the dirt? Genesis he, he makes man out of the dust of the earth. He's got his hands down into the dirt. And here in John's gospel, here's Jesus, the God-man. He is the exact representation of God the Father. And he's got his hands in the dirt. And what's he doing? He's creating something. He's, he's reclaiming what was taken by the fall. He's taking mud out of the ground. And he's putting it right where stuff went broken. He's touching the world, he's touching broken creation and making all things new. It is a glorious picture, right? In John's gospel, everything's talking. Everything's got significance. Jesus could have just spoken healing, but he puts his hands in the dirt because there's a lesson here. He wants us to see it. He, he puts man, mud on the man's eyes and he tells him, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. Again, Jesus didn't need him to go to the pool. Lots of times he just healed people like that. So there's a lesson here. There's something tucked in. Dig into it. He's, John is saying, dig into this. There's a story here. And John says, let me tell you what the name of that pool means. Siloam means sent. Do we really need a Hebrew lesson? Well, the answer is yes. John, the writer, under divine inspiration, says there's significance in the name of that pool. It's called sent. You ask the question then, why was Jesus sent? Why was Jesus sent to this earth? And we don't have to guess the answer to that question because Jesus told us on day one in his very first sermon of all the texts that are on the walls, scrolls all over the place, and he says, this is the one. And he pulls Isaiah 61 off the shelf and he rolls it and he says, this is what I'm here to do. And here's what he said in his very first sermon on opening day of his ministry. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has, here's that word, sent me. To what end? Why are you here? He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. He announced on day one, I'm here for this. 
All day, every day, I'm here. I was sent to open blind eyes, not just physically blind eyes, spiritually blind eyes. There's so much significance there, right? What does Jesus say? Same Jesus, fast forward a little while, and Saul of Tarsus is breathing out threats against the church of Jesus Christ, and Jesus grabs him by the scruff of the neck and saves him, just breathes life into the man. And then what does he say to the apostle Paul? He says, I am, that same word, sending you to the Gentiles. What do you want me to do when I get there? He says, I'm sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light. That's why a lot of times when we're talking about mission, we're using those metaphors because they come straight out of the Bible. Mission is Darkness to light, blindness to sight. That's what happens when Jesus shows up on the scene. People start seeing for the first time. So much significance here. Even in, I think even in Jesus' method, he touches, he touches his eyes, right? So growing up in our house, all of us, as kids do, everybody, you're all going to get splinters, right? You're going to run into something, or you're going to get a shaft of glass or something stuck in your foot. And then in our house, and this is probably true in everybody's house, you had your, like, designated splinter removal person, right? One of the parents tended to be better than the other one. For us, it was dad. Like, dad, it was like his superpower. He would just say, okay, and that meant it was done. You didn't even know he touched your foot. Somehow, you know, he had lifted a shard of you know, something out of your foot, and he had just done it, and it was over. Right, he just had a gift in that area. You don't just want anybody just dig, you don't want some hack digging into your foot, right? I mean, this is a really sensitive place. Don't touch this. This really, really hurts, right? Here's Jesus, and, and the man just hears footfall of people walking by, which he probably heard all day because he was a beggar. And he hears the footfall of people walking by, and then he, feel, he hears them stop. And then one of them asks a question that's really insensitive. And then another one says something interesting about God's glory, and then he hears one of them kneel down, and he's doing something in the dirt, and then he feels something cool in his eyes, and then he hears the voice say, go to the waters, go to the waters and wash, and you'll have sight, right? He, what did Jesus do? He touched the place that wasn't working. Now, there's people in this room, a room this size, there are people in this room, there's something broken in your life. There is a sensitive place in your life. Nobody can touch that area. That part of your story is quarantined off from human touch. It just hurts too bad. I don't want some hack digging into a painful place in my life. So we just say, stay away. And Jesus is so good at touching sensitive places. And he says, I'm going to have to put my hands right here because this is what broke. And I'm going to put my hands here and I'm going to make it well. That's the power of the gospel. I love even what, what Jesus does. He, he involves the blind man in the miracle. He says, I'm going to put this mud on your eyes, and then I want you to do something. I want you to get up and feel your way over to the water, to the pool of Siloam. Jesus, he, he makes contact with our brokenness. My... Um, my dad pastored a little bitty church in New Orleans. 
and uh, he, would, he would exercise the spontaneous op- option with some regularity. So he would call just people up, and he would say, hey, come, come up and sing that special, right? And, he, and then my mom would hop up on the organ, and she would just, they hadn't planned this, but this is just, it's what's happening right now. And frequently, Sister Melinda Taylor was, was the go-to, and she would come up and she would sing the song. And one of the songs that Dad would frequently ask her to sing, it just said, he touched me. Oh, he touched me, and oh, the joy that floods my soul. Something happened, and now I know he touched me and made me whole. And I thought about that this week, and I thought, I wonder if that song was written from John chapter 9. And this guy doesn't know. He can't really put it together theologically. Something happened. And I can see, he, he touched me, felt something in this general area, and then I saw, he touched me, he made me whole. It's the power of Jesus. And he says, go to the, wash in the pool. In verse seven, you see those words, go wash in the pool of Siloam. He calls this man to, to act the miracle, right? The Christian message, the gospel, what does it do? It announces stuff. It announces Jesus paid it all. We had ruined everything. And Jesus came into this world, paid it all, said, give me your sin, took it to the cross, buried it in the ground, rose again three days later and says, anybody who wants in on new life, just believe. Turn from sin, trust in me, and you're home. Right, that's the message of the gospel. And when you heard that message, if you were in Acts chapter two and you heard that message preached by the apostles and you said, okay, so what do we do now? What did the Christian gospel say to them? Go to the waters, repent and be baptized. It's very similar to the kind of language that Jesus is saying here. Go to the pool of Siloam, repent and believe. There's water for that, right? The old hymn set this theology to music. Would you be free from the burden of sin? There's power in the blood. And then it asks the question, would you be free? You want to be free from your passion and pride? There's power in the blood. Come. So if you want to be free, come for a cleansing to Calvary's tide. There's wonderful power in the blood. Jesus says, you go, you go to that pool over there, and you're going to come back seeing. And that's what the text says. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Oh, this morning, go, go to Calvary's fountain. Come back home. Come back with your sins forgiven. Put your trust in Jesus, the one hope of the world. Don't wait. Do it. Do it now in your heart. Do it now. Come for a cleansing to Calvary's tie. I, I love even what happens in verse 8 through 12. I'm not going to read it all here. But what happens in verse 8 through 12 is what this guy, he just has been made whole. He's still dripping wet, and he's already testifying. He's already a missionary. Nobody had to teach him. He didn't have to hear the Great Commission. None of that has been uttered yet. But just like the woman at the well in John 4, she comes down. She's drunk water that satisfies forever. And she runs back to town saying, you got to come meet a man. Like he absolutely changed my life. And he's just up there on the hilltop right by the old well of Jacob. And she calls people to come. And he's doing the same thing. Say, I don't know much, but this guy turned the lights on for me. you got to come meet him. <laughs> Evangelism is a natural born instinct of people who have been saved. Mission. It's a reflexive response of the saved. 
And it's to this act of testifying that leads him to the next thing that happens here in our text. So the compassion of God's the first picture. Second picture is the abuse of ministry. And that's not too strong a word, unfortunately. The abuse of ministry. You know, in rhetoric or logic, there's something called a non sequitur. And that means that, that what we just heard doesn't match what we heard before that. Right, it doesn't follow from the, the premise or from the conclusion. So there's a conclusion and a statement and what happened next makes no sense. It doesn't align with what came before. That's John 9. I mean, John 9, this guy's been healed. His whole life has changed and, and it's time for the, here come the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and they don't start partying. Like what you expect to happen is balloons coming down from the ceiling Confetti cannons, right, sack races, a DJ, like bring in the DJ, let's play all the songs that have the word eyes. I only have eyes for you, right, eye of the tiger, a brown-eyed girl, like let's sing all the eyes songs because this guy's got eyes. Like he can see, he's never been able to see before, it's time to dance. But instead of celebration, what happens? Here come the interrogation lamps, right, because the, the Pharisees basically had this philosophy, why celebrate when you can interrogate? Right? Why, why would we do this fun thing when we can do this super intense, really uncomfortable thing? Right? That's what you see happening in this, this text. What happens after, in the aftermath of the miraculous? I put it this way in your notes the wow of rejoicing is drowned out by the how of scrutiny. The wow of rejoicing is drowned out by the how of scrutiny. You might even want to circle these words in your text. Look at verse 10. How were your eyes open? Not that his eyes were open, which should be the main point, but no, we need to know how. Verse 15, asked him again how he had received his sight. Verse 16, how can a sinful man perform such signs? Verse 19, how then does he now see? Verse 26, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Because the how really matters, right? If he, you said that he made mud. It's the Sabbath. We don't make things, we, right? That's a, that's a violation. That's a code compliance violation, right? We need to know exactly how this went down. And you feel for this poor soul of this guy because he's like, hey, listen, I'm not sure what you want me to say. Well, you know, you read through the text. He keeps saying over and over, I don't know. I, I don't know that either. I don't know what you're trying to get me to say. Here's what I know. I couldn't see five minutes ago, and now I see, right? So this is why people go crazy about flowers. They're amazing. You, sir, have the fullest beard in all the land, right? He's just looking, and he's seeing stuff for the first time in his whole life. He just wants somebody who would enjoy the grace of God with him. Everybody's busy drilling his theology. We need you to spell soteriology for us, right? They're drilling his theology in this moment, right? I um. I love John 9. And part of the reason I love John 9 is I, um, I identify. I identify with this man in John 9. I came to faith in Jesus at an early age. I'm so thankful for parents who loved Jesus and who lived the gospel. They didn't say one thing and do another. They lived it out before us. They told us the good news. But my dad wasn't theologically trained and I was really immature in my faith for several years. And so when I come into college, I am theologically a blank slate. And I know the most important thing 
Jesus died for my sins. Apart from that, I'm super confused about everything. I don't understand anything in my Bible reading plan. I have no idea what this thing is saying. And then I go to college, and I, I start to want to read it more, and I become insatiable. And, and at that point, I thought, if you loved Jesus a lot, and you recommended a book, I'm going to finish it by this weekend. So if you, you know, people told me, hey, Leonard Ravenhill. I found every Ravenhill book I could find and read it. Somebody told me, J.I. Packer, I read Knowing God in Two Days. Somebody said, read Charles Finney. I found his systematic theology. I read his systematic theology. I saw the name on the front was Harry Kahn. He wrote the foreword to that systematic theology that was published in 1976. I found in the yellow pages where Harry Kahn lived in Illinois, and I called him. And I said, can I drive up there and spend a weekend with you? And he said, yes. And I drove to Illinois, and I asked him a thousand theological questions about Charles Finney. I was so hungry. And if you knew me, you, and you heard me speak more than two sentences, you would have, I hope, said something like, he's confused, but he's alive. <laughs> I was alive. I was reading wacky authors from the so-called Voice of Healing Day. I mean, I was just, if you gave me a book, I wanted to read it. I didn't know which way was up. Every day I was learning something new, and half of it was terrible, right? I heard years later, I heard an author, Steve Brown, he said, half of what I know is wrong, and I don't know which half. <laughs> and that really describes for me the 1990s, the entire decade. I, half of what I know is wrong, but I don't know which half it is. I was so confused, but I was so alive. Couldn't spell theology, but I was alive to God. And here's this guy, and he's never seen the light of day until today. And he needs one soul on planet Earth who will say, hey, welcome home. Bring it in. How many fingers? Yes, it's three. You're right, right? He just needs somebody who's ready to party to enjoy the grace of God with him. Somebody who's saying, man, we knew this day was coming. We've been praying for you. Here you are. Now you can see. Who can see? You can. That's who. That's what he needs. Look, what happens when the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, gets into the ventilation system of the church? It creates something called joy. <laughs> joy. Right, a readiness to identify every evidence of grace. It creates a social environment where every step toward Christ is an absolute wonder of grace. You did what? <laughs> That's unbelievable. God is all over your life right now, right? The wow of rejoicing in a gospel-centered church is not buried under the how of scrutiny, even theological scrutiny. Here's, here's another way ministry goes sideways. The next point, the tools of ministry are shame and ridicule. And that's what's happening in our passage. Shame and ridicule are used like tools that leverage growth. This is our growth plan. We pull out the tool of shame and it gets you to move in the right direction. You ask the question, why didn't this guy's parents stick up for him, right? I mean, usually mama bear comes out, right? Somebody's saying, this isn't the kid who was, who was healed miraculously, and dad and mom are like, hey, hey, back up for a second, <laughs> right? God has done something in this guy's life. It was that Jesus over there who did it. They're afraid to answer the question. Why? Because there's such a deep 
culture of shame and banishment. Like, fingers always on the trigger of banishment. Like, you make one more move in that direction, we pull the banishment trigger. Right? That's what happened. Look at verse 22. They were afraid of the Jews. That's why they didn't answer the question. Since the Jews said if anyone confesses Jesus as Messiah, he'd be banned from the synagogue. You hear that? You see the irony there? You chalk this up to the work of Jesus, we're kicking you out of the church. They asked him again, verse 26, how do you open your eyes? And this is, <laughs> this is when he becomes maybe my favorite nameless character in the entire Bible, because he says, you just keep following there, I already told you and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? It's almost like this guy is saying, listen, I know about parts of on the human body that don't work, like you should get that checked out. Like, seriously, why do you keep asking the question over and I've already answered that question a thousand times. And then he says, look at it, oh wait, you wanna become a follower. You wanna follow him too. And I can't, you can't read tone. It's so hard to read tone in the New Testament. So I can't tell if this guy is literally Buddy the Elf. Like if he is really that buoyant and effervescent and just optimistic, like, oh, you, you want to follow him, right? Is it, is it that or is it him being just deliciously ironic? Either way, he's awesome, right? And how do they respond when he asks that question? Verse 28, three words, they ridiculed him. These are the supposed shepherds of Israel. Look, it's no wonder why Jesus saved a special tone of voice for these guys. He said, you snakes, you brood of vipers. He said, you whitewashed tombs. Everything's clean on the outside. Everything's corrupt on the inside. You're just filled with dead men's bones. You blind guides. You think you can take somebody in a redemptive direction. You can't take them anywhere because you can't see. He says stuff he doesn't say to anybody else because these are the spiritually proud, these are the morally superior. They ridicule new life, brand new life, brand new eyes, and they're saying, this guy has no idea who he's talking to. What a clown. He has no idea who we are, where we went to school, how much we know. Brooke Hills, listen, by the grace of God, can we all say today afresh, not here, that doesn't happen here. We, we pursue kindness. It sits right in the middle of our eight values. We pursue kindness. We welcome graciously. We come into the scenario right at ground zero when everything fell apart and devastated, and what do we do? We weep with those who weep. And we sit there in the ashes and we say, only God can work here, and I'm gonna sit here until it happens. You and me, we're gonna watch God work right here where your life was broken. And that's the gospel. That's, that's when it gets into the bloodstream of the church. The compassion of God, picture of the abuse of ministry, and third, picture of the blindness of religion. Look at it in verse 26. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Verse 27, exasperated. I already told you, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? Verse 28, they ridiculed him. You're that man's disciple, but we're Moses' disciples. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but this man, we don't know where he's from. Verse 30, this is an amazing thing, the man told him. 
You don't know where he's from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. He's starting to figure stuff out theologically. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone's God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. Throughout history, no one's ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. And look at their fallback, verse 34. You were born entirely in sin. And are you trying to teach us? And then they threw him out. Just pause for a second there. Sermon was preached in the fourth century by the great preacher John Chrysostom. And he read that verse and he looked out at his congregation and he said, he was cast out of the temple and the Lord of the temple found him. Look at it again, verse 34 or 35. Jesus heard that they had thrown the man out and when he found him, there's the Lord of the temple, finds him and he asks, do you believe in the son of man? Now listen, what we're about to see is another healing. Who is he, sir? Right, he's, who is he? Who is the son of man? That I may believe in him. And Jesus answered, you have seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking with you. And now his eyes are open in a whole new way. I believe, Lord, he said. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, here's the whole point. I came into this world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see, and those who do see will become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and asked him, we aren't blind too, are we? If you were blind, Jesus told them, you wouldn't have sin, but now that you say we see, your sin remains. In other words, if you're gonna keep the metaphor going through that whole thing, Jesus says, if you were blind and knew it, I'd heal you but because you think you see, you stay blind. This willful rejection of Jesus, who he is and what he does. Herman Melville, the author of Moby Dick, said this, heaven have mercy on us all, for we are all dreadfully cracked about the head and desperately need mending. That's a pretty good summary of John 9. Heaven help us all, for we are dreadfully cracked about the head and desperately need mending. The big reveal in John 9 is the answer to the question, who here was really blind? That's how the story opens up its gem. The big reveal is who in this story really was the blind party? Kent Hughes, a pastor of many years, had this comment. It is possible to come to know Christ, but to effectively seal ourselves from the light. As with the Pharisees, our pride in visible change can dull us to the aggressive darkness of our hearts. You know, if John 9 were a movie, you could call it trading places because that's essentially what happens Again, there, Jesus' word. I came into this world so that those who do not see will see, and those who do see will become blind. You follow the man who was born blind from the beginning of John 9 to the end of John 9, and he comes to physical sight, and then he sees. His sight is more and more penetrating, more and more crystal clear until he says, you're the Messiah. 
You're the one we were supposed to worship, and he worships. So he moves from absolute darkness to total light, and the others are moving in decidedly the opposite direction. Matter of fact, it's interesting. The irony is that at the pivot point in our text, he's teaching the teachers, and they know it, right? Look, look at verse 31. God doesn't listen to sinners, right? I'm, I'm putting this together. So if this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. Look, in that statement, he has actually bested them theologically. He won. He scored a point. So what do they do? They say, you know what? You're a real sinner. And you think that you can teach us? God, keep us from being blinded by religion. God, keep us from moral superiority. God, keep us from thinking the other people need mercy, not us. Great Charles Spurgeon unpacked the lesson this way. I love this. He said, it is not our littleness that hinders Christ, but our bigness. It is not our weakness that hinders Christ. It is our strength. It is not our darkness that hinders Christ. It is our supposed light that holds back his hand. He said this last week when we were looking at John chapter 8, that the banner that hangs over John 8 and 9 and 10 is one verse of the Bible. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. That explains everything in that passage last week, this passage, and our passage next week. It, this is a surprising reversal takes place in John chapter 9. The blind receive sight and the sighted are stumbling blind. It's a deep irony in our text that... The hardest blindness for Jesus to heal isn't physical blindness. That's easy. It's spiritual pride. It's spiritual blindness because by definition, spiritual pride, I got 20-20 vision. I can see everything. Discernment's my spiritual gift. <laughs> right? The, the only eyes in this room that Jesus refuses to open are the eyes people here who think, I got this. I can see on my own. I don't, I don't need that, right? I don't need your charity. I don't need to pick me up. I do the picking up. I'm the pick-me-upper person. I don't get picked up. I pick people up, right? That, that's what I do. I, I know stuff, right? I'm happy to teach a class, but I don't learn stuff from you people. And you know what Jesus says? He says, then I'm out. I'm out. I got nothing to do here because you think you see. And I came for people who are blind. I came for desperate people. Brooke Hills, here's our takeaway. Let's lay down our pride. Let's crucify our pride. Let's, let's welcome the uninitiated, those who, who want to learn but don't know which way is up yet in the discipleship process. Let's never get over the song that started singing in our hearts on the day we were converted. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see.